Right now? Okay. Okay. Hi, everybody. Hopefully, uh, everyone is here and thumbs. I got two thumbs up from Rochelle. So thank you so much for having me. Um, I figure I'll, I'll make this my title, STEM PhD candidate to government scientist. Um, so I'm in the government now as a research physicist, but I did, you know, I was an undergrad and then a grad student. And then I kind of went through my life with, you know, I still remember very vividly about being a PhD candidate and how uh, kind of felt very uncertain at that time. So I don't know if anybody is interested in uh, doing a PhD or has uh, started one or anything like that in this audience. Um, but I just wanted to say that, like, when I was still in school, whether no matter which uh, stage of school that was undergrad or grad, um, it was kind of sometimes it was a little hard to believe that I could kind of, you know, move on and get to uh, like a career and all that stuff. So that's going to be part of the focus of my talk. So I'll start with what I kind of worked on on my PhD to give an idea, like what was the background that kind of helped me to start my career in uh, the government as a scientist. And and then so that's kind of that part will have some physics stuff in it. And if you have any questions on that, let me know. Um, it is my physics uh, PhD thesis. So I might, you know, kind of ramble on. I'll try to keep it short. And then also I'll talk about some of these other things that I do. So let's see if I click, does it, things happen? Okay, great. Okay. So I worked on, I worked on um, this project called Anita, Antarctic Impulsive Transient Antenna. So I kind of have, I actually ha stole some slides from my own defense for this talk. And so if you see things, uh, that's, that's you know, these slides were in, a, in my actual defense. And then sometimes uh, when I was doing grad school, I, was, I would also give um, so-called job talks, which were basically for academic positions. So if people in this audience are interested in um, an academic career, this talk hopefully will help to give an idea for uh, both how you can go from a student to an academic career, how you can go from a student to a professional in the industry, and also how you can go from all of this to a government career if you're interested in any of those avenues. This is what hopefully I'll cover here because I've kind of done all of that or tried for all of that with uh, some success, let's say. <laughs> so anyway, my thesis was searching for ultra high energy neutrinos with Anita. So I, so I give a little bit of a summary here. The main goal was to detect ultra high energy neutrinos and the detection technique was to use radio Cherenkov techniques. So this was basically a particle astrophysics experiment um, with RF techniques. Um, so, so that's what I'm gonna cover for a little bit of time here. Okay, so now um, I talk about the standard model uh, of, of elementary elements over here. Let me just move my, sorry, I'm going to move my face to the side because it's getting in the way of, of, of me seeing my stuff. So here's the elementary particles. There's quarks, leptons, and bosons. Those are the main elementary particles. As far as we know, these are the elementary particles, so they cannot be broken down further. Um, and I said my my PhD was in particle astrophysics, and you can think of that as so astrophysics. People know what that is. It's you know study of astrophysics, uh, study of objects in the sky, the physics of what drives those types of things, and then particle astrophysics is basically astrophysics done with particles, typically other than uh, just optical light. So that's particle astrophysics, and that's where the particles come in. So that's why I kind of gave an overview over here of all the particles, and specifically the particle of interest in my experiment uh, for my PhD was were these leptons uh, known as neutrinos. So, so there's three types of neutrinos, electron neutrino, muon neutrino, and tau neutrino. And you can think of the neutrinos, if you're not familiar yet with what a neutrino is, you can think of them as the much, much lighter cousins of electrons because electrons are also leptons. So neutrinos fall in the lepton family in the standard model. There's also these other things like quarks. These make up things like the proton and neutron, and those are composite particles because they can be further broken down into things like quarks. And then there's, of course, uh, the bosons. 
And light, which is photons, is a, is a type of boson. And then you might have heard in the news, I think around 2012, the Higgs boson was discovered. So I also have that up here. And these are pretty much all of the particles that we know about that make up ordinary matter. And again, neutrinos were the particles that I was interested in that my experiment, experiment was about. But I wanted to give an overview of all the particles uh, real quick. Okay. So moving on, so yeah, that's what I studied, or that's what we used to study astrophysics. Um, other people can think of using other types of things too. And then now I will attempt to play a video, and this video has like a summary of my PhD research, and hopefully it'll work and play for you. Um, and then you'll get kind of like a quick summary of everything all at once. It might start Something happened where it failed. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Let's see. Oh, I see. I think people are waiting to join. I'm sorry. I will attempt to play this video again. Uh, okay. Last time it helped. I make it sorry okay screen is showing up again um, yeah we, we can see your screen not the video okay um let me Eh, no, it, oh God, why is it so bad? No, not this, not this. Mm -mm -mm. How do I make it show that video? Let's see, there is one other option. Okay. Ah, I see what's going on. Yeah. Okay. Zoom share. No, pause share. There. Okay. Is it now showing sort of a video kind of thing? Okay. Ah. Let's just try it. So I'll actually try to move it. dramatic stuff um, to kind of show you what I worked on uh, in a summary kind of form. So basically I made that video as a <laughs> sort of a, an advertisement for one of my talks when I was in academia trying to give a talk as a grad, graduate student. Um, so that was kind of like announcing like when my talk would be and all that. But basically it also kind of captures my PhD, which was um, 
to go to Antarctica to look for these neutrinos. So this is what this next slide is about. So basically, Anita is Antarctic Impulsive Transit Antenna. So we, so I actually got to go to Antarctica to do this experiment, which was really cool. And then now I wanted to move on to like giving an overview of like what this um, experiment is as compared to like other things in the field. So on the left here kind of shows you where Anita is on the energy scale. So I've got things like there was this black arrow and I've got things that are like kind of like less than 10 to the nine EV or a GEV. Uh, energy scale, then there's things that are between like a GEV and 10 to the 17 EV, and then there's experiments that are above 10 to the 17 EV. Hey, hey Owen. Hey. Yeah. Sorry. Let me just get it. Um, so um, we are still seeing a slide that just says summary video with the black screen where the video is. We can't oh. see the slide okay. that you're talking about right now. Oh, okay. Sorry. I will uh, do that. And hopefully, does this work? So now you can see it. Okay, great. So this whole thing that I was just talking about is on the left here. And I've kind of pointed out all these different types of experiments names on here. So Dune, Hyper-K, those are experiments that have to do with particle physics that are lower energy. Um, I don't know if they consider themselves low energy, but for someone like me who works with ultra high energy neutrinos, they are lower energy. So they're below a GeV energy scale. And then there's things that are in the middle and they, they go by, they're kind of classed, classified as high energy, high energy experiments. So things like the Large Hadron Collider, Antares, Ice Cube, those are in that middle section there that are the high energy experiments. So these are still very high energy experiments. They're just not as high as like the ultra high energy experiments, which then I have on the right here, the, the, the purple ones. So Anita, that's the project I worked on, Auger, New Moon, these types of things. And then there, you even have an experiment called Ascarian Radio Array or Ariana. These experiments are all basically like when you're in the field of particle astrophysics, you kind of end up learning about all of these experiments, even if you do only one of them. Um, so something like the Large Hadron Collider, you might have heard of, it operates at a center of momentum and an energy of around 14 TeV. Uh, so that might give you an idea. So that is like a, obviously, human-made um, particle accelerator with experiments going on at that kind of energy scale. Um, and Anita, the experiment that I was doing, is basically interested in energy levels that are higher than that. So in a way you could think of we're doing measurements or we're doing measurements of neutrinos and, and the experiment itself is at a higher, is sensitive to higher energy scale than what we can really um, make uh, right now in, in particle uh, colliders that are man-made or human-made. So, so basically in that way, we're going after phenomena that is happening at higher energy is one way to think about it. So on the right here, I've talked about kind of like ways that you can get these ultra high energy neutrinos because neutrinos, you can think of neutrinos as sort of the equivalent of an electron in chemistry, because just like pretty much all chemical reactions involve electrons in some way or shape all nuclear reactions involve neutrinos in some way or shape. Like they're just a really common side product of a lot of new nuclear uh, reactions. So like the sun makes neutrinos, all kinds of things make neutrinos. They're very common, but what's uncommon is the ultra high energy neutrinos. Like if you make a neutrino that's super high energy, like this kind of 10 to the 17 EV and above, that's called an ultra high energy neutrino. And that is actually much more rare than something like a solar neutrino. So, what kind of process, so one might, one might like ask, what kind of process makes these types of ultra high energy neutrinos? So something that's talked about in our field, there's a cosmogenic way of making an ultra high energy neutrino and an astrophysical method of making an ultra high energy neutrino. So the left one is the cosmogenic one. In either case, something that's a very commonly referenced process of production of ultra high energy neutrinos is this thing that I have in the box, which is basically a proton and a photon interacting to make pions, which are an interme intermediary particle. And, that, and then that decomposes to make ultra high energy neutrinos. So that's like the commonly referenced process, like how it happens 
can and like what situation that process happens in can be different. So the cosmogenic one is a cosmic ray, which a, a proton is an example of a cosmic ray can interact with like a photon as it as it passes through the universe, because there are uh, there is the cosmic microwave background, for example, in the universe um, that we've measured. So you can imagine that a cosmic ray in the form of a proton can actually meet a photon on its way to Earth or something. And then that makes pions, and then that makes ultra-high-energy neutrinos that we might end up observing here on Earth. So that would be a cosmogenic method of getting these ultra-high-energy neutrinos. The other way is the astrophysical method, where this kind of process is happening in an astrophysical site versus like just a generic proton meeting a generic photon. So that's the one that I have um, that I talk about next. So, so I say my favorite explosions in the sky are gamma ray bursts. And this would be an example of an astrophysical phenomenon in which we can get ultra high energy neutrinos. So gamma ray bursts, they're basically when a star dies, uh, they can either, basically, you might have heard of supernovae. That happens when a big star uh, dies. In fact, sometimes supernovae can be so big and so much more explosive and powerful that they're called hypernovae. Uh, so there's a couple different ways in which gamma ray bursts happen, either from hypernovae, which is the large supernova, or they can even happen from uh, neutron star, neutron star mergers. In fact, that's the one that we knew kind of less about, but we're starting to learn more about. So basically when a star dies, makes a hypernova or a supernova, it can end up being like a black hole or a neutron star. Both of those are, are possible. And sometimes it depends on like the initial mass of that star. But then that environment, like this whole explosion can make things like, called gamma ray bursts. And they, these are basically transient events in the sky. So like if something did become like all this explosion happened, then it turned into a black hole and then that black hole just lives for a while. That's not a transit. That's more like a, a more permanent object in the sky that we can observe. But like in the, basically in the process of all this happening, if there's a gamma ray burst event, then that's a more transient event in the sky. In fact, gamma ray bursts can be very variable in their time. Uh, it, it can be like as like less than two seconds long, or it can be more than two seconds long, like many days long even. So, but the point that we are interested in here is that in a gamma ray burst, there is all these collisions that happen. Like you can see on the, kind of like the right side of the left slide here, um, these plasma shells, they move, they, they propagate at different speeds, like all of the matter, because the star has now, you know, it's dying, it's, it, the explosion has happened, they move at these different speeds, which lead to these collisions. And at those collisions, these are not normal collisions. These are like, um, these are, this is like a very big phenomenon. So these, at these collisions, you can have these particles that are getting accelerated in crazy ways. So basically, there's two pathways. You can have accelerated electrons and accelerated protons. If you have accelerated electrons, that produces synchrotron radiation and inverse Compton, and that's how you get the gamma rays. And that's obviously great because we see the gamma rays, and, and that's how we know that this is a gamma ray burst. So that gives us the gamma rays, like the acceleration of those electrons. And then if you have acceleration of protons, that's how you can get those really accelerated, super high energetic protons, which then can interact with the photons in the environment to make pions, just like in that previous slide. And then those decompose to become high energy and ultra high energy neutrinos. So this type of environment also supports the production of high energy and ultra high energy neutrinos. We don't know yet for sure that gamma ray bursts can do this, but that's the thought. So that's what we would be testing out if we did measure neutrinos from gamma ray bursts with, with my experiment or with other experiments. So that's that was the whole kind of motivation. I really like these gamma ray burst uh, type of like explosions and like this kind of astrophysics. This is what I was going after. And I worked on basically a gamma ray burst search design. And I visited like the uh, MSSL that the Mullard Space Science Lab in the UK and talked to like, there are people who work solely on gamma ray bursts. They're like super uh, experts on gamma ray bursts. So this is something I, I was kind of 
going after in my PhD. Um, and I wanted to do a search that was constrained in both time and direction. And that would reduce the thresholds of the search. So like, basically these particle physics experiments involve doing searches for things that are rare. And you have to think of ways to reduce your noise and reduce your um, thresholds and increase your sensitivity. That, that's what it kind of all boils down to at the end of the day. So let's see, next is, I'll go over this kind of quickly because I don't have um, as much time as I, as I hoped, but basically with these neutrinos, uh, as I was mentioning it, they're very rare. So in order to measure something rare, you can either look in one place for a really long time and you hope that the rare thing happens, or you want to increase your detection area. So like these neutrinos, the we get zero points, less than 0 0.01 of these ultra high energy neutrinos per cubic kilometer per year. So if I want to be observing them, if I want to be detecting them with my instrument, we want to be really sensitive and uh, we need like a, a lot of volumes. So the way we went with was going for a lot of volume. And in fact, the, the volume I'm talking about is the ice. We want the neutrinos to interact the neutrinos we're interested in to interact in the ice and we chose the antarctic ice because antarctica has a lot of that ice to uh use as a detection medium for these neutrinos and the picture on the right is kind of showing that so basically we want the rare neutrino that we're after whether it's from a gamma ray burst or some other astrophysical site or some other thing cosmogenic whatever we want it to come and interact with the nucleus inside the ice of the Antar of antarctica then it makes a particle shower made up of protons, electrons, and positrons. As that shower moves through the ice, it develops a charge asymmetry, like basically it becomes uh, charged. It's not just a neutral, neutral blob, it's a charged blob. And when a charged blob moves through ice at speeds that are higher than the speed of light in that medium, uh, it produces Cherenkov radiation. So this is a well-known phenomenon. It's been well-tested. It's been shown that you get Cherenkov radiation when this kind of thing happens. And then the next twist is that when this Cherenkov radiation, when that shower size, basically when the wavelength of the Cherenkov radiation is much, much greater than the shower size, you get coherent emission. And that's what we need for observation with Anita. So basically, when all of these things kind of come together and we get the coherent emission, so not only just Cherenkov radiation, we want it to be coherent. That's how we want to make this detection happen. This is how we detect those very rare neutrinos. So this was all to explain how we detected. And again, why we need Antarctica, I kind of already said this, because of the large volumes of ice that's needed here. So now we could have picked a different kind of interaction medium. Like all we need is the neutrino to come in and interact with the nucleus. In fact, it interacts with the quark inside that nucleus because these neutrinos are so tiny and so energetic all at the same time. Uh, we need some kind of dielectric medium. And we went with ice. And a lot of that is also logistics and other kinds of other reasons where we, um, you know, that, that affects your, choice of where you do your experiment, the money and the politics and all that. But Antarctica is great. It gives us lots of radio clear uh, detection volume for this kind of thing to happen. And I have another cartoon kind of showing that uh, coherent emission from Cherenkov radiation being kind of like, it's like the light is bending as it goes from ice to air. And that's where Anita would be uh, to kind of catch that kind of radiation. So the next thing I should talk about is what is Anita? It is actually a, an array of radio antennas that are between 200 and 1200 megahertz bandwidth. And it's, so that's Anita right there. That's the instrument that we want to use to detect these neutrinos. It's on the right. And there's two little humans on uh, in, the, in the front. So you can see what kind of size it is. That's me and Linda, another po uh, postdoc. Uh, she used to be a postdoc on, on Anita. And it's completely solar powered. So that's the instrument. And it's actually a balloon payload. So this thing, we actually launch it from a balloon and it goes up in the sky and it tries to detect these uh, Cherenkov radiation coming from the neutrino interaction from the sky. So even though the neutrino is going in the ice here, making the Cherenkov radiation, which gets out of the ice and into the air, the Anita is actually in the air looking down to catch these types of radio waves. So that's why this is a particle astrophysics experiment with RF techniques because 
like neutrinos are involved, RF is involved. It's all kinds of things. It's 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 a little it's it's a lot, but hopefully <laughs> this is kind of helping to see. So this is a picture uh, of Anita in the sky. So Anita is a NASA long duration balloon program. So all of that instrument that I just showed you with the two people in front, we hang that from a ginormous balloon and it goes up and NASA helps us with the balloon. So it's a NASA program in that sense. So just like you can launch instruments on satellites and put them in space, you can also put them on balloons and then launch that and it, up it goes and it's at 40 kilometers float altitude. And it actually circles the continent of Antarctica looking for these neutrinos, looking for the radio waves from the neutrinos. And that's kind of, again, uh, summarized on the right here. We're trying to observe ultra high energy neutrinos. The mechanism involved is Cherenkov radiation, which when it's radio, it's called Eskarian radiation, another fun fact, I guess. And then we're looking down at a million cubic kilometer of ice at once. And that's because we're looking for these really rare neutrinos for which we need a lot of volume. We can't just look at a little bit of ice for a little bit of time. We need to look for look at a lot of ice because we're trying to find something that's super rare. So next, this is Anita for I was at this. So we've had four flights of Anita and I was in one of the students in charge of Onida 4. So this is me taking a picture of the balloon getting filled with helium right before the launch. Um, so actually these launches are pretty difficult. Uh, just like a satellite launch or something is very weather dependent. You, 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 you care about a lot of different factors when you do any kind of launch. And actually uh, a lot of the times, like the first few attempts are scrubbed and we have to just go home and well, not home, like we're in Antarctica, we have to go back to where we, I guess the dorm um, and, and try again. So, the, so this was a very interesting, but a, a very exciting experience all at the same time. Third launch attempt oh, I guess I, for I guess this is a video. Four. Is it showing There's up? the balloon getting okay. inflated with helium. So I guess a bit, I have a bit of a, that's, th that was our hangar. So in Antarctica, we got this uh, little, the, so it's a pretty big hangar actually. Patrick, walking away. <laughs> and uh, those are the mountains and everything in the distance. Um, so I was here for two months preparing yeah. for all this and then doing the launch. It's launched. I'll keep going, but yeah, exciting times. Uh, we It took a month to get ready for the launch and uh, Anita actually uses the polar vortex to circle over the continent of Antarctica to look for the neutrinos with the radio waves. And so if you are not ready by the time the polar vortex is ready for you, then you're, you go home. But thankfully we were ready. I worked very, very hard on this launch to get everything ready on time. And then I also stayed there during the flight and, and you monitor it as it's going and you can kind of see it over here now we've had four flights and they're variable length uh depending on different factors uh you can so we had a 35 day flight anita four was 27 days um and then i actually worked on some electronics to increase the lifetime of our experiment by by working on filters that reduce the noise and that helped a lot to increase our lifetime so even though the flight day, also the flight was long. It wasn't like short or anything. 27 days is still pretty long. Um, so that helped a lot actually. So Anita 4 was considered a very successful project. Um, and then those electronics that I was talking about, uh, it's on the right here. So I worked on a lot of boards. Um, I personally soldered like thousands of parts to make these filters that then would be in the signal processing chain of Anita to reduce noise. Uh, when it was flying because sometimes when you're flying and there's a lot of noise coming in uh you can in you can incur a lot of dead time and your experiment is basically not doing anything at that point so you want to reduce the noise to the point of where you can function so that's that 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 was the work that i was doing there and it kind of shows you the timeline like we we didn't even know that this launch was happening at the end of that year like earlier in 2016 um and then in the middle of the year, we do like the sort of like a hang test. Uh, we actually go to Texas for that. There's another NASA facility in, in Texas where we did that. We make sure everything's good. And then we deploy starting in October uh, to go to Antarctica. Anyway, I'll keep going. Here's some results. Um, 
I'll just say that finding these new trainers is extremely hard. Most, uh, most of the time we don't. Um, so on the left here, you've got these red crosses. Uh, those are actually discoveries and measure and or measurements of cosmic rays that were found with within our data from Anita three, the third flight of our, of Anita, and then we had a neutrino candidate. That's the little plus blue there, but that was consistent with noise later on. Because even if you say think that you have found a neutrino, you have to then statistically prove that it's a neutrino and not some other garbage. And it was actually shown that it, it was noise. It wasn't. Uh, an actual neutrino uh, discovery. So over here, basically what we do on the right here, we, when you don't find a neutrino, what do you do, right? You pre what, do you do, what do you end up doing is you put a new limit or a new constraint on the present theories that predict uh, flux of neutrinos. So if the theories are saying that you should have seen a neutrino and this is like the theory and this is the prediction for the flux and everything. So you can kind of see um, you, on the y-axis on the right here, you can see that was the prediction, like those little, those curves and everything, like GZK, comma, Katera, like that gray uh, band over there, that was the prediction for neutrino flux. Now, if you then go and find no neutrinos, you get to put a new curve on this plot saying that we actually constrained this theory. We, since we didn't find anything, we're going to put a line here saying that it cannot be more than uh, the flux could not have been more than uh, this line or whatever. And the x-axis here is energy. So it's also energy dependent, like whatever the flux was predicted for whatever energy. If you didn't find anything, then you can put a limit accordingly. So a lot of this is just a game of finding a new limit, which is kind of boring given that the experiment sounds really exciting, but the results can be kind of boring. So in the absence of discovery, you present a new limit. And then of course you report your neutrino background estimate. And then you try to figure out like, okay, we, you know, what, what noise could have caused this background and then try to take that kind of noise out in your analysis level as well. So just like you can work on reducing the noise in the, um, actual experiment level, like at the, in the hardware, like make a new filter or something. You can also do that in the analysis stage for the post-processing uh, stage of the data. So we did a lot of that. I worked on a lot of that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I guess I got a medal. This was kind of cool. Like you get a medal for going to Antarctica and serving as a scientist. Um, so, so that was cool. I get to have a medal. I had nothing to do with the military at this time. So now I work in the military. So I guess this is kind of valued and it's uh, interesting. But uh, back then I was just a graduate student and I got to have a medal doing all this work. Okay, now moving, kind of switching gears and I'll try to wrap up um, over here because I think I have only till 2.50. So I'll try to kind of go through my next stuff. Um, so that was to give you an idea of what my PhD was in. It was particle astrophysics with RF techniques. Next, I wanted to mention that I do a lot of work to try and help students with their academic careers. And one of that effort is right here. So I wrote a book, it's called How to PhD, the Graduate School Handbook. And basically I kind of have details in there on, since I went through the PhD process myself, I have details in there on how to succeed as a graduate student, because it can be quite hard to be in grad school and go navigate the different challenges, whether that's how to get into graduate school to how to actually graduate with a PhD. So I kind of deal with all of that in the chapters of this book and the main problem. So like as much as getting into grad school itself is a challenge. And I talk about that in the first chapter of the book, I would say that it can actually be incredibly challenging to be a senior grad student who's trying to graduate because by then you've been in grad school for so long. You're just so frazzled with like all of the difficulties of academia and trying to finish your projects and everything and looking for a job. It can be very overwhelming. So I try to kind of focus on uh, and give you the information here, which I recommend as to how you can graduate faster rather than slower. So what I say is it's just four simple things, uh, <laughs> which is not really so simple uh, when you're actually doing it in practice. But if you kind of like think about it this way and realize like this is what it takes, that might help a little bit to actually get through it. So first, obviously, finish your projects. Um, like it can be, there can be a lot of distractions in graduate school where your advisor just wants 
like a lot of things or there's a lot of research group duties or outreach or whatever else is going on. But like when you're trying to finish, you really do have to finish your projects. You have to finish the projects that that you need to finish up grad school. Like what will help you with your graduation? So I say finish your projects, finish writing your thesis. So I know that there's a lot going on and sometimes literally the student doesn't have time to work on their thesis. So keep in mind that you need to finish writing your thesis in order to graduate. Don't forget about that. Or um, I actually wrote my thesis uh, and it felt pretty good. Like it, the writing of the thesis kind of helped me to like finish up because it's motivation in itself. Like when you see that document kind of come to life. Um, and then third and fourth thing that I recommend is to find and and train your replacement graduate student and then to find a job. So th this is because sometimes when you get really um, senior and you're really you're so useful and resourceful in that group, it can be hard to lose that student and advisors may be like, well, you know, who's going to do all this stuff after you're gone? So if you help to kind of keep that group going by training the replacement grad student, the training the you know, newer student who will come in and, and maybe take your project forward or something or the next project or whatever, uh, that might help. And then finding a job. Like if you don't find a job, I feel like they don't have a reason to let you graduate. Or I mean, there is a reason to let you graduate, which is that you're done, but they might hold that against you. So, so I suggest find a job, whether that's an academic job, like a postdoc professor, whatever. I mean, Rochelle here is a great inspiration there. She has become a professor. That's you know dream for many people. And like having something like that really, really helps to get you out of grad school. So I would, this is what I suggest. I give you the main points here in, in my book. Um, and then I just wanted to say that you don't have to buy this book if you don't want. I have a blog. It's called howtophd.org slash blog. And it's all of this stuff that I covered and I'm going kind of quick here, but I have a lot of topics that are academic related or school or industry, whatever related. That's all in this blog and it's all free. And I have this blog right here, for example, how to actually finish your PhD in a timely manner. That's in there. And I also, it's not just limited to academia at this point because I've shifted now from academia to industry to government. So I kind of talk about all of this in the blog. And if you want, you can check it out and, and see if that helps with any of these topics. Okay, and then moving on to another topic, which is the topic of postdocs. Now, I don't know if anybody here is interested in an academic uh, type of career or not, but basically in my kind of field, oftentimes when you finish your PhD, the expectation is that you will line up a postdoc and you will continue research as a postdoc. And then uh, at some point you might become a professor. So now, especially for like a very research heavy kind of career, that's what's expected is that you'll line up a postdoc versus a professorship. So that's, that's just what I knew. And in fact, like it's kind of a miracle that I ended up in my job now because when I was in grad school, I was actually applying to postdocs and trying to get, get postdocs. And these are the ones I applied to. And I have details about this too in my blog and in my, I have another book which is to do with postdocs. So anyway, I try to be as transparent as I can be with these types of things because I think it can help people kind of set their expectations and kind of like know what how it all works. So I have this table in the book, in the blog, whatever, you know. I got lots of interviews. Um, I got a few offers. Um, and, and basically, I have the detail of what those interviews were like and what it took to get the interview all that kind of stuff as well in my book and my blog. So if you're interested, you have that. So this is that book, How to Land Your Dream Postdoc. Um, and uh, I will say that I did not end up actually doing a postdoc. I just uh, was able to, I could have done a postdoc, but I actually ended up not. So, but you know, this is like, if you want to land one, since I did do that, I have a book on that. Um, and then, at these postdocs, like if you're going to go for a uh, an academic job, whether that's for a professor or a postdoc, generally you have to do something called a job talk where you kind of present your research and that's part of the evaluation. That's part of what uh, they base their evaluation of you on. So this is just one quick talk tip. Um, so you can see this is a page from my book. And basically what I say here is don't assume that your results will be obvious to the audience. 
Um, like for example, today, I probably kind of failed at a lot of things because I'm going real quickly. And some of the things I, I presented today should have done, probably been done more with more uh, background and time and, and, and better, better presented. But basically when you're doing a job talk, uh, make the takeaways really clear and tell them exactly what they need to know and what they need to focus on. Otherwise, uh, if they don't understand it, they'll feel angry and you might not get the job just because the feelings of the audience have been hurt. <laughs> so I would say uh, how you make people feel at any interview, at any job talk or whatever is just as important as how um, smart you are. In fact, maybe more important, how you make people feel um, and how they think of you, whether you're approachable, friendly or mean or whatever. Uh, anyway, um, this um, is another blog post of mine, which is actually very uh, popular. So I just wanted to point out that I have a post called How to Write a Research Statement for a Postdoc Fellowship, um, where I include a my research statement that actually was successful and I got the interview and all that uh, for a very competitive fellowship. So the fellowship, I think it was the Chamber Chamberlain Fellowship at Berkeley Lab uh, is very competitive. Lots of people apply to that. And I was selected for an interview and to visit and all that. I think only like five or six people were selected out of thousands. So I thought that, well, the research statement that I used to get in, to get selected for that, uh, I, I could share with people. Um, and, th and that's why I included this here. So you may uh, want to check this out if you're interested in something like that. Um, and then over here, I just have some quick uh, quick takeaways for writing the research statement. A lot of people uh, worry about what they should put in a research statement. And what I say is actually what you put in a research statement is much of what you've already done um, and, and using that to make a case for why you would be great at the next job. So you don't have to like make things up really. Like if you don't really quite know what research you want to do next and you don't know a lot of details about that yet, um, the good news is that you're really trying to like make a case for yourself as, as an expert in what you have you've already done. And what you've already done, you are the expert in. Nobody knows that better than you. So that's the nice thing about research is that you can use that to make your case and um, kind of talk a little bit about what you want to do and mostly about what you've already done. And then make that case. So, so it, it works out pretty good, actually, if you do that. And then I also have a podcast, um, which is on all platforms. So if you look for my podcast, uh, How to PhD podcast, it's on Apple, Google, Spotify, everything. So all of these topics, if, if you don't want to read about, I also have a podcast on all of this. Um, and it's at this link. Um, well, this is one of the links. It's on Anchor. Um, you can search for my, my handle, Oindri B and then B, B E E. Uh, but also if you uh, search how to PhD podcast, you'll find it. And then if you want to add me on LinkedIn, um, maybe you don't want to add me, uh, then that's totally fine too. But if you do, uh, here's my LinkedIn. And I'm, you know, what I do now for a living is science and engineering for the government uh, slash the Air Force. And so, you know, if you have any interest in any kind of like consulting or government type of job, uh, and you want to like send me a message or connect or something, ask me a question about any job or or have me refer you or whatever you can by finding me on LinkedIn. Um, and there's my LinkedIn uh, uh, like link. So there you have that. And then here I show part of my resume. So by the way, I also help people with their resumes uh, for free. So if you need help with the with your resume, I have a template actually. Uh, that I can share with you and you can use it if you want. So I've been told that my resume is good and a lot of people uh, say that it stands out. So that's why I, I made that into a template <laughs> and, the, and it's on my blog as well. And you can use that if you want. So basically what I do, um, this is actually a summary of what I did for Booz Allen Hamilton. That was my first job out of grad school. So I went from graduate school. I applied to postdocs. I did not take the postdocs. I got referred to an industry position by a friend of mine and I got my first job in industry and I went directly from graduate school to this job. So this job, I've actually left this job now. And this is kind of like a summary in my resume for what I was doing in that job. But it was basically working for the Air Force as a consultant um, for the company called Booz Allen Hamilton, who is kind of like a big defense company, government uh, contractor company. And this is the stuff I did there. 
Um, and I guess I'll, I'll give you a summary. So I provided gov government clients with insight on survivability against complex threats with detailed analysis um, involving radar development work and EA techniques. So some of that, if that doesn't make sense, I don't blame you. It's uh, supposed to be kind of cryptic because I can't really talk about what I do. Um, so I've tried to put that in a somewhat whatever form over here. But basically what I help out the government with is survivability of aircraft uh, and you know other types of platforms that uh from being shot down basically that's what i do um okay okay so transitioning from academia to consulting is something i wanted to talk about since i did transition from grad school uh, where i did my you know my from my phd to a consulting job i wanted to say a little bit about that so there's a lot of parallels with academia um, so I was, I did not know what to expect in my new job when I left grad school and started that job, but I will say that physics background or, and I'm sure some of the other STEM backgrounds, like chemistry, biochemistry, whatever would prepare you well, I think for all of the technical work. So I felt that I was well-prepared. Um, some of the research proposal threading that we have to do in academia, even as grad students helped in things like winning contracts, because that's what you do in the industry, like you want to win contracts to help out the government in this case. Um, I got to do collaborative work as well as independent work requiring ownership. And that's actually, both of those are recommended. You want to be a, kind of a team player as well as an individual contributor. Um, those all help. And then I also got supervisor training and opportunities for leadership. I was like, someone's manager, you know, those types of things uh, officially I, I got experience with and it's good salary and benefits. Um, I would say like academic careers, like postdocs and things often pay you kind of half of what you would uh, make in the industry. And so this was an experience in that as well, like actually having a good salary and 401k and all of that. Um, and then government clients. So like, since I was in government contracting, my client was the government, like Air Force uh, people they do value PhDs. Now that's not required. Many of them don't have one, but it is valued. So it helped me, I think. So just wanted to show that. Um, the next thing is that I did leave this job. <laughs> um, I was actually hired on by my clients. So that's my new job now. And so I wrote a blog, of course, on why I quit my job in a large consulting firm during this pandemic. So I actually started my new job just over a year ago uh, during the pandemic. I learned a lot from that job, but it was time to move on. And I kind of talk about that in this post, if you're interested in understanding why I left my industry position. And then my current role is as research physicist. It's at the same base, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base here in Ohio uh, at AFRL, which is Air Force Research Lab. It's one of, uh, it's a big national lab. Um, it's probably the biggest lab in the Air Force, at least if not, in, I don't know, the, I know that Wright Pat is like a really big research base, maybe in the world, maybe at least in the country. So, uh, so it's full of you know, a lot of researchers and there's a lot of opportunities for research careers. And then what I do, it's, it's focused on cognitive electronic warfare. So, co so cognitive, you know, we want AI and all of that in the Air Force. And then electronic warfare is the thing I was talking about where we try to use that to help survivability of our platforms, of our pilots, uh, so that we are, we know what's going on in the environment and we don't allow uh, our threats to shoot us down. So that's the whole point of that. And that's what I do now. Um, and a lot of that is radar work, uh, I will say, by the way, uh, which is basically RF work, which is basically what I did for grad school, except I was doing it for neutrino searches, not for the Air Force, but a lot of those techniques kind of transferred over when I came to this job. And so same thing with my current job now, there's a lot of parallels with academia. And again, physics, like something like physics really helped me well for this kind of job, research proposals, all of that. So now I do more of the proposal evaluation and things like people submit proposals to the government and I'm part of, I'm, I'm one of the government employees now. So I kind of help with that. And then, I would say in the government, one, if you get a government role, it opens up a lot of opportunities and having a PhD is a kind of a great 
tool. It's not a requirement, but it can help with eligibility. So I have found that that's just, that just makes me eligible for certain roles and things that I can apply for and be competitive for. Uh, I'm not saying that it's a requirement. It definitely is not, um, but it does help, I think. And then now I'm taking on program manager uh, role, actually. So like I've been kind of more of a, a collaborator, collaborator or an individual contributor, but now I'm kind of moving up, I, I guess. Um, and there's a lot of leadership opportunity. It's much more people focused. Um, and it, it, it's increased interactions with a lot of different companies because I'm the government employee client now. And then these companies are, uh, are, are trying to you know, work with us or work for us. So that, so that happens. And again, so if you're interested in industry, I kind of have a breadth now for all that as well. If you want to ask questions about that. And then last thing, I will just say I'm on TikTok and on YouTube as well. <laughs> so that's my handle. That's that Oindry B is like my handle on pretty much every social media. So if you want to get in touch in some way or shape, um, you can and learn more about everything I do. And I'll wrap up and I'm sorry, because I think I'm running late. Did everyone go home? All right. Can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> Better now. I'm on. I'm on Ryan's computer, so we don't have the feedback. So first of all, thank you so much. Uh, I think the presentation was awesome. Um, we do have a couple questions. I'm sure we have a couple. Yeah. So do you want to come up here and just like just? It's easier if you just say your question than me trying to translate your question. So she's gonna she's gonna come up and ask you. You can come over if you want to put your face in my. Okay. Should I stop recording real quick though? It's up to you. Oh, I don't care. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. Hi, my name is Aurelia. Uh, my dad works for the government, so I know a lot about like government positions, but so I was wondering what are some differences that you noticed between industry and government jobs and which one have you liked better? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, I would say that, for example, when I was a government contractor, um, we had to be chargeable or billable rather. So we always had to have a charge number and be associated with a specific contract or more, like more than one contract is fine too. But basically you want to be billable. Like you have to, like you have to, like all of your hours have to be billed to the government client. And if you don't have enough billable work, then I mean, I think that's bad. And now, now I will say, I will preface you know, I should say that I never actually had any trouble with finding billable work, but it was a bit annoying that like I wasn't just a regular employee. I had to like think about billing my hours all the time and stuff like that. So that was kind of annoying. Um, another difference. So the government employee, employee I, I think, has more flexibility. Like you can work on projects with much more freedom like you're, you do, you don't just have to work on a project that you have a bill billable number for like you can charge for that project therefore you do that project government employee can have more breadth of like i'm an employee paid you know pay, getting a salary and i can i can work on uh more or less what i want within reason um contractors do make more money so if you like more money that might be the way to go uh, if you like more benefits, like leave and stuff like that, then government employees have it better. So it's all, all honestly, I think I like being government more just because I like um, autonomy. Autonomy is way more in the government. Uh, so, but but I will say you make more in contracting. And I think if you're a technical person, contracting might be just fine because uh, even if you lose your job, there's always more contracting companies that you can get a job at. So like a lot of people say that government is more stable and you always have a job. It's very hard to get fired. But honestly, if you're a technical, like a STEM person in contracting, you'll probably land up another job. Like you'll probably get another job even if you did get fired or your contract ended, right? So it's really whatever works for the person. That's but great. Thank you. Do we have any other, are there any other questions? So you have, I have one from the chat box that I can read. Um, okay, I'll go ahead and read that because I don't have anybody jumping up out of their seat right now. So the one I have from the chat box, it says, what pushed you to get your PhD when you discussed before that you were unsure about pursuing it? Oh, um, so I kind of did want to finish, like, so I guess when I was doing undergrad, 
that's when I had the hopes and dreams of definitely becoming a professor. And that probably what was what motivated me to apply for grad school and go to grad school and all of that. Uh, I was also on a student visa. Like I was an international student back then because I'm not actually from the US, I'm from India. Um, and actually, like I was like, well, if I don't get into graduate school, I will also not have a reason to be in the country and my student visa will like throw me out. So that was part of it. But mostly I wanted to become a professor and a researcher. Um, and then grad school was just really hard um, where basically, like, I think at one point I was actually looking for jobs and thinking that I should just, you know, quit my PhD and get a normal job. Um, so then what pushed me, I would say when you get into grad, like, I feel like people do want to finish. It's just really hard. So it's almost like finding ways to kind of stay sane and keep on keeping on until you're done. So one of the reasons I've started my blog, for example, is that it just kind of helped me with my mental health and uh, coping with all of the shenanigans of academia. So I would say maybe start blogging or something, you know, like you need something. Like I think having another dimension to life helped me a lot. Like uh, not just being super focused on academia and finishing my PhD, but also kind of starting to do other things like the blog. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I think kind of having a sense that I have some control over my life uh, helped to finish, but it was, uh, it was it's pretty hard. I think I didn't quite believe I was done even now, actually. I'm like, maybe I'm still in grad school. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what we're going to do is, well, we're going to officially stop there because I know some people have other classes and other commitments to go to. So if you guys need to go, don't let, don't let us hold you hostage. If you do have, um, if you do have any other questions, we'll just like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chat with Owendry up here for a minute. So if you have another question, come up here and you can ask her, all right? Um, besides that, physics seminar students, you have your, I sent you guys a couple emails today so you guys know what's up in class, all right? I'll be seeing you not next week, but the week after, all right? Okay. Oh, so Owendry, thank you so much. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and I'm so sorry about the technical difficulties at the oh, beginning. Oh, no, 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 me too. Oh. Me too. But we recovered and we got it and it worked out great. And I think that, um, I think your talk was awesome. It looks like we have, yeah. oh, we have questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I ha I ha I'm, I'm here all, all day if you want me to. Okay. I was just curious, what was the actual like recovery process for the Anita, like what you sent up with the balloon yeah. for the recovery like for that? Absolutely. So it goes up in the balloon and then when um, basically, there are some things like NASA or people who are still out in the ice might kind of make you uh, land slash crash. And like there, there or whether something happens where there, there's different logistics that can kind of affect the length of your flight, basically. Like also like the, you know, depending on the balloon you're using, you're not going to be able to fly just forever. So like our flight, I remember it was a bunch of different reasons. Like it wasn't all just the balloon reason. It was other reasons too, like how you will recover it. So it's a great question you asked there because, you know, it's circling over the continent of Antarctica and you want to land it or end the flight at a good location because some places of Antarctica are very hostile and you don't want to go back there to get it. Because so, so we do actually fly out a short uh, or not short, a small plane, uh, to the recovery, to wherever Anita, we've crashed it basically, because there is a little thing we can shoot, like it's a flight command that we can, uh, you know, give the via satellite to Anita, and that basically makes it parachute land onto the ice, and uh, that's how we landed. Now, where we landed, uh, you know, say it's already kind of made one good loop and it's come back to where we started from or something and that's a good place for us to recover it from that might actually affect how long we fly and that did affect Anita 4's length and and then we send a smaller team uh to go and get the payload on a, on a smaller plane so it's just kind of like that judgment call between where you're at the weather conditions and how much data you've already gotten for it yeah yeah and also like the people and support uh available because you know these NASA people who are going uh down to Antarctica they might be like well uh you know you started in December we don't want to be here much later than like this date of January or something because like, we do need NASA's help so this is a NASA and NSF combined project so like the academics are paid 
through NSF, but then NASA is helping us with the balloon and the flight and all that. So like, it might be that the NASA guys just want to go home, you know, and they're like, yeah, we, we're not going to help you after this date or something. <laughs> it can be stuff like that. Uh, and like Antarctica logistics are like tightly controlled by um, like the people who are supporting the base and everything. So like it can be a base stuff is going on and other projects need their help or something. Um, and like, yeah, but, but it's basically usually in the summer, the Antarctic summer when we fly. And that's usually a better time. Like obviously we want to avoid the winters there, but the summer is not a bad time, but there are still some restrictions and that affects like how we uh, land and like the actual recovery. I think Anita 4, we didn't recover until the following summer. It just, uh, it just, it landed and just stayed there by itself for months. You know, my poor instrument. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Do you guys have questions? Yeah, do have more more, there's more questions. Yeah, Hello. Absolutely. Hi. I just have a question about like what applying to the government was like. Applying to the government? Yeah. 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 So I got really lucky because I didn't have to like, so when you apply for the government, so if you're interested, by the way, you can go to usajobs.gov and apply to any of the open roles in there anytime you want. Right. So USA jobs will have like right now, whatever positions are open, you can go look and apply. However, it greatly helps to like know somebody and they help you through the application. So for my case, um, I didn't have like a traditional application process because like I, I filled an application out and I interviewed and all that. And I went through the process and it took six months or more to actually like start from, you know, going from like talking to the people about the job to actually starting the job. So I was still consultant and co contracting in, in all of that time. But basically like the big help was that my client was hiring me. Like I already had worked in that branch as a contractor slash a consultant and the brand chief knew me really well. And he really pushed for me to get that role. Cause when you do a hire like yeah. this, you have to get it approved like from the branch, from the division, from the directorate, like all of the levels that go up even above the branch. Yeah. So having his uh, kind of like support helped a lot, I would say. So having someone like basically try to poach you is like the easiest way. Like you already have a job and then someone's trying to like hire you into the government, like going from, it's considered like a internal uh transfer yeah. kind of thing almost like you're already working there and you're bring uh, br getting brought on as a government now instead of contractor okay thank you yeah absolutely yeah. all right what about you guys any questions yeah. all right more more questions yeah, yeah. well they're both on you can oh okay no. yeah um what do you do for graduate school? Did you go to a master's program or straight into like a PhD type of deal? Who's calling? Yeah, on? I went straight into a PhD type of deal. Like, so I was at NC State was my undergrad. And then I was applying to grad schools. I applied to 11 grad schools and got into three. Um, and Ohio State was one of the ones. And uh, they did like, so when, when you do get into graduate school, like they bring you on for a visit and like a, like a prospective student's week or something. And then you get to visit the place and see how things are. Uh, and right. Ohio State had a really good visit and that affected a lot, like my decision to go there. Um, and then uh, it was like a directly, like a PhD program. Like you do get a master's along the way. So the physics department of Ohio State, that's where I went. Uh, they have a thing called candidacy exam. Um, when you pass that, you become a PhD candidate. And that's also when you get your master's. Um, if you, I think you are allowed to fail it like once and retake it. But after that, you might have to like just leave with the master's. And, and then you still get your master's, but just not the PhD. Uh, like they won't let you continue as a as a PhD candidate at that point. But most people pass it, even though it's kind of tough. But like most people pass, um, they get their master's. They kind of just they're like, OK, whatever. And then they keep going to get their PhD. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I actually wanted to uh, mention real quick. Another way that people can get a government job is like you could do your master's and or PhD through the government. Like 
get a job in the government and then make them support you for your master's and PhD. That's actually another great way to then, you know, get your education as well as job situation figured out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 it's like, I can't, I can't do it on my computer. I have to do the audio for his computer and the, the, the camera oh, it's silly. It's okay. Um, no. Okay. That was awesome. So thank you so much. And um, yeah, no, really that was, that was great. It was a ton of useful information, especially because of your trans, like your transition now that you, you, you've seen all three, <laughs> which is really, really very powerful um, have experience both, you know, in the academic world and then in the industry world and in the government world, which is actually just amazing. So I just, yeah, I think that that's a hugely valuable perspective to have. And I'm really glad to talk to the students today. Of course, any other questions? I'm totally- Yeah, no, I think think we're good on questions here. Most of them have kind of trailed out of the room here because they had, some of them had like had a three o'clock class, right? So they had to go to class at 3 p.m. But um, but that was absolutely awesome. So thank you so much. Thank you. And yeah, you know, if you don't mind, I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out and I'll follow up with you. Um, yes. Yeah. After, after we're done chatting today, but yeah, it's been it's been great to see you, and yeah, we just appreciate we appreciate it so much. Of awesome. course, yeah, same here. I I'm always happy to talk to the students and or teachers or whoever about all of this because you know I think that's been like a side hustle of mine is to like make people or help in whatever way I can with these career transitions and things. Cause I think I really didn't know about any of this when I was a student. So like yeah. if anything I can do, I'm happy. Exactly. <laughs> I think I, it's one of the things I definitely wish I would have had those resources, resources around when I was a student too. Right. So, yeah. so yeah, that's definitely very helpful. It's great. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll go ahead. We'll, we'll let you go for now because I'm sure you have other things on that you need to do this afternoon too. And um, like I said, I'm all, if you don't mind, I'll follow up with you. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, for your time. don't mind at all. Yeah, ble- really happy to hear from you. Yeah, it's good to hear from you too. So yeah. awesome. All right. Thank well, you so much. Thank you. All right. Bye. 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 Once you